Welcome to the In Search of More podcast. I am your host, Ellie Nash. Join me weekly on my quest for more, more from myself and more from this world. We'll see you on the other side. All right, I'm sitting here with Benny Salas. Welcome, Benny. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Benny's an executive coach, a keynote speaker, and the founder of the Speak More Academy. Speak More Academy. Okay, so a lot of people come to you today for guidance, advice, direction. Yeah. Yeah, a lot, a lot of folks come, come our way, both through content. Um, as a speaker, I try to take this message of speak more, really build on it. And there's a whole story that you and I will probably get into, yeah, talk more I'm about sure it. Because that's yeah. not how you and I met. It's not how you and I met. <laughs> <laughs> we met in the basement. <laughs> yeah, we met in the basement. We didn't meet on the mountaintop, but we met in the basement. <laughs> yeah. So you and I met in the, uh, in the rooms of recovery. Yes. Right, both of us... Uh, struggling with uh, sex addiction in various forms. Yep. And we won't name the program uh, specifically, just, you know, protect the anonymity of the 12 steps. But uh, we're both, you know, working on our addiction, working to stabilize our 100%. life. 100%. And that's where, uh, that's where we got to know each other and obviously um, connected once again through Mike Drop story. And here we are again. Yeah, man. I'm, I'm, I, I'll be honest with you. Just I have so much to be grateful for. That experience... I believe it was 2018. The mic drop? Yeah. It's 2018. It was like 2018, 2019. Yeah, right around there. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you inviting me to, to take that stage changed everything. That was the speak more had been on my heart, but that was the birthing of it was the opportunity because I was still on the, the process of my recovery. Right. It, it was so I had been at least seven years into it and at least, at least seven years into recovery, into recovery. Point. Can we talk about that before we go on to speak more? Yeah, absolutely. Talk about what got you into into recovery. What yeah. was the, the bottom, so to speak? I think the bottom was one day I was I was asleep and I woke up in the middle of the night and I really felt like like I, was, I don't know if it was an angel, if it was a spirit, if it was God saying that if you don't tell your wife, you're going to lose her. You don't tell your wife what? Um, that I was struggling with a porn addiction. But it had escalated at that point. It had, it had stepped beyond the boundaries of my marriage. It went from pixels to people. Yeah, it definitely. Say. Real quick. And I think that is, you know, like anything else, I believe in mastery. So I kind of mastered the addiction. And so <laughs> I went all in. <laughs> I was fully committed, right? <laughs> and so it escalated really quick and spiraled really quick. And I think that was the turning point for me um, of really just addressing the shame, the embarrassment, the guilt, like all the, the sexual abuse. There was, I felt like everything came to this like screeching halt. And it was time for me now to begin really working on me. So I want to dive into that a little bit because this is something that's kind of a hot topic within the recovery community as well. When someone is getting sober, and telling their wife and what to say and how soon to say yeah. the whole disclosure and their, you know, therapists who have all sorts of processes around disclosure. So I want to go into your story a little bit, and maybe it's not indicative for everyone, but it's your experience. So yeah. I think it's worth uh, worth hearing it. The message that you felt you got in the middle of the night was, either I tell my wife, yeah, I, that it was it was time to. I I think it was time for me to just get help, and I knew that. It, happened, it had to happen with me saying something. All right, here we go. 
It's an ad, but it's not an ad because I was paid. It's an ad as an expression of love and appreciation for someone who did a lot for me and this podcast specifically. I'm talking about Ryan Carter from Scarlet Row. Many of you may know Ryan because he was a familiar face in the early days of the podcast, but much more than being a familiar face, he was kind of the, the juice behind the podcast from the very first day I had the idea. He's the one who pushed it from not just online webinars, but for consistent content, then going from audio to video. Everything you see here was his concept, his idea, and his execution. In addition to this podcast, Ryan has done a ton of work for me and my companies from creative design, photography, brand strategy, brand development, creating video content, creating presentations, photography, and much, much more. So you name it in that space, you want to create content, he's your guy. Even if your idea is just an idea and you don't have it all worked out, bring it to Ryan. He'll help turn that idea into something you can be proud of. Reach out to Ryan at scarletroad.com. And was that the first, did you start with telling your wife? Yeah. I, I, I told her one morning, I said, I'm struggling with the porn addiction. You know, like if you've never been in recovery, you never really tell the full story. Like, <laughs> right. You didn't <laughs> you go get straight. the light version, right? And so I was like, it's this. And then. I mean, you didn't go all the way to the infidelity. Yeah. You just said, hey. Yeah. I, 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 I wanted to address what I thought was the real issue, but I really needed to come to disclosure so that I could start fresh. Right. And so I think for me, it was, it started there. It started with, here's what I'm struggling with. And then I went to a therapist and a therapist, I'll never forget this therapist as I, as he was asking me questions and I started to open up, he closed his book. He went, well, I guess you need to tell your wife everything. I said, what? I guess what? <laughs> you need to tell your wife everything. <laughs> he goes, I said, are we done? <laughs> he said, yeah, we're done. Go tell your wife everything. And of course I just wasn't ready to and it took probably the next month or two after that initial conversation so you're not in recovery yet at this point at this point i'm not in recovery to really come to like my senses and so i sat down in front of uh, a pastor in front of a spiritual leader and i put it all out there so you your wife a pastor pastor and another leader in the in the church community. So how did you tee that conversation up with your wife to begin with? Meaning, hey, we're going to go sit down with the pastor. I, I think what? what happened was that things spiraled really quick after I told my wife. She began to now look for clues, and she began to look for information on what else is there. Understood. And so the more that she asked, the more questions there began to surface. And then I felt like, okay, I'm not telling her the full truth. And there were certain things that I, that were a part of that whole process that if I didn't come clean or if I didn't tell and it came back, I knew it would just cause more friction. Okay. So let me make sure I'm, under, I'm understanding it. So first you tell her about the porn. Yeah. But she's not satisfied. She starts poking around. Yeah. Well, she, she meets with a therapist. The therapist says, ask him these questions. And I was like, <laughs> oh, crap. <laughs> I'm like, damn that therapist, right? <laughs> but, but I don't think if I didn't get those, ask those questions, I don't think I would have really taken it as serious. Because I would have just treated the porn problem and not what was now becoming addictive for me as well. Right. Like I, it had to have this like really, really like important impact on me. 
and it, and I couldn't fake it anymore, right? So being asked these tough questions, I needed to give answers, and if I didn't, I knew that it was only going to damage my relationship further. Right. And you had two kids at this point. At this time, we didn't have any kids. Oh, any kids? We didn't have any kids. Okay, I didn't realize. And, and here's the thing too: my my addiction was not about trying to replace my wife or find love. It was about masking and medicating a lot of the pain that I was experiencing, a lot of trauma in this area of my life, of relationships, feeling accepted, feeling loved, all of those. And so I felt like there was a, a, a an underlying reason, but it wasn't like I just wanted to, to, to replace my wife. And I remember my therapist saying this to me. I remember I got to the point early on in my therapy where I said, man, I feel like, um, I feel like I've made my addiction, my mistress. It's the thing I, I go to, she goes, no, you haven't. She says you made your wife, your mistress. Oh, wow. Your addiction has been your first love. Wow. That broke me. That really broke me. It, it really hit when I begin to now go back and look at the years that I had been addicted to porn and addicted to sensuality, it was way longer than I'd been in my relationship with my wife. And she was right. Right. It made way more intense. Yeah, way more intense. I was more committed way more to that. Way more committed, yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the eventual meeting with the pastor, that was just about full disclosure. That was full disclosure. Got that it. was me saying, because at the time I was, again, I had spent many years in ministry work, serving people, serving God, and that was like everything to me. And I realized that it also was a great place for me to hide you know, right. and allow myself to get into a very dysfunctional, unhealthy space. And so that was the beginning of the end of my, what I would call ministry career. Because um, at that point, I, I was just so done with feeling like I can't be myself because you can't go to, sometimes you can't go to the local clergy and confess these things. Right. You would probably think that's the best place to go to, right? <laughs> Sometimes it's not. Not if there's going to be additional yeah. shame that's added. Not, yeah, exactly. Not if there isn't the... You know, the fear of judgment. Also, yeah. there's... in Sometimes in certain faith communities, we don't do a good job restoring. We say, come come imperfect, but if you show your imperfections, you're, you're basically out. And so for me, there was this love-hate relationship. But I, at the time, I really didn't care about that. All I was caring about was... I needed to get myself healthy. I need to love myself again. I need to fight for what I have left if I really want to be in this marriage. Looking back at it um, now, the the disclosure aspects with your wife, because this is this is a topic that comes up for me all the time. You know, when people reach out to me about porn, I always tell them, you know, at some point in time, you're if they're if they're in a marriage, when people reach out to me about it, I always say, at some point in time, you're gonna have to let your wife know what's up. Yeah. Really, I can't hear without it. No, at some point in time, you're gonna yeah, have some to point. let them know. So, what are the um, are there certain rules or certain things looking back at your own story that you said, Hey, that was really good. I did it that way. That was a poor choice. Oh man. I, I, I can ask them in specifics, meaning going back, are you happy? There was a third person that was there when you oh, did yeah. disclosure. Oh yeah. hundred percent. I mean, didn't mean my wife didn't tear up the house still. <laughs> <laughs> didn't mean she was still angry and didn't storm out. What it meant for me was that when I looked at that, I think you have to really be honest with yourself and ask yourself, what is it that you really want? 
you know, I, I, everybody's reason for disclosure is not the same. Some people are going to end their marriage. And so they won't share the full details. And they'll focus a lot on what the other person is doing wrong. Um, for me, I had to just focus on me. Regardless of, like, and there's no, there was, there's issues in everybody's marriage, issues in everybody's life. But that wasn't a good enough excuse for me to hang on. I needed to take ownership. So I think, one, you have to take ownership over your actions. If you're going to take ownership over your actions, that honesty is where the healing process begins. So meaning the communication is coming from a place of responsibility. Yeah. Of I mean, obviously, you were hurt in your relationship. Of course. Yeah. Saying. Yeah. yeah. And I think also seeing a therapist as soon as possible was helpful because I could process the chaos a little bit differently. So, but both of you were seeing a therapist. Yeah, she was seeing a therapist, I was seeing a therapist. So that as well is a good... Yeah. Again, if you're going to work on your marriage and you're going to work on your relationship, it's get ready for a long journey. Like, it's not, you know, even to this day, I mean, this has been 12 years. I'm still building trust with my wife. I'm still checking in. Like, it doesn't stop. You know what I mean? So for me... And she'll always say it's about trust, it's about honesty, it's about these things. And sometimes I have to remind myself, just because I'm not in that place anymore, doesn't mean that the feelings that we can make someone feel aren't familiar, right? And so we've had to, we both have, have had to do our own work still, you know? I mean, like you said, I'm not, I'm not as active in those communities anymore, and I feel like I've, it served me well for a great period of time. I feel like now we've, we've moved on to other things and now I'm working on still bettering myself. That, that journey never stops. But I think you have to sift through right. all the, the stuff to understand how to do that. Because if not, you know what I mean? It just, you don't get fully well. I don't think you get fully healthy. Were there things you did looking back that you're like, damn, I shouldn't have done that in the disclosure with your, with your wife? <sighs> About disclosing? Just, or, or just in general? Yeah, just the way you did it, maybe that. Hey, I wish I did that. I wish I didn't do that. Um, I don't think I knew how to do what I didn't know. I think I needed to just go through the process and trust the process. Because those are things that we shut off. Like, like some of us are going to take that stuff to the grave. Other people will never share it. And you could see it. You could, you could see it and sense it in somebody who hasn't. Like, when... You know, I, I when there's secrets inside, right? Something. When they're when they're holding yeah. on to the secrets, you could see it. You could. It's evident in the character and the mannerisms, and the personality, and the way even someone even thinks about moving forward. It's it's almost like get it out, <laughs> like like get that stuff off of you because it's weight. It weighs you down so much that you can't be free. You really can't. So I don't know. Tell me what you think about this. So I've always shared um, with people that when disclosing, which I do think it's good to do in front of a, I have found that it's good to do with the third person mm -hmm. um, present, is not to say the full truth, but not the full details. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the details, sometimes the other person doesn't want to know the details. Right. And, you know... Probably if I was in a room of guys where there wasn't cameras and mics on, right, we could probably talk about why that is. But I will say this. I will say that some of the details are just hard to hear. 
I think you have to be honest about the actions that you've taken and not the details of how those things materialize or, or, or administered or, or how the whole process was, because that will burn in someone's mind. That's right. What I've said is like this, is that if sometimes we use language Mm -hmm. that communicate facts, other times we use language that create an image in someone's head. Right. So if I say I struggled with porn, that's a fact. Yeah. If I say I was up at 3 a.m. sitting on my laptop and I was looking at this kind of porn. Yeah. That's a different. It's a whole. That's yeah. A, that's a different level of, um, I don't know, information that mm-hmm. now there's an image attached to it. And then the right. more we add to images, images are hard to, yeah. are harder to get over than facts. And, and sometimes, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a, it's a tough situation to be in. I'll tell you why. Because if you don't give some indication of your behaviors and mannerisms, you'll constantly trigger that other person because they don't know if that was it or not. So in some ways you do have to share what were your patterns of behavior without telling them how you misbehave. You got to talk about some of those patterns. So like, for example, if you know, Hey, you know, at night I'm constantly, you know, I constantly did this and I, so guess what? We're gonna, we got to put some boundaries around that. And how do I support you in that? Now, I don't need to know the stuff you looked at. I don't need to, you know what I mean? Like, Understood. But I feel like you do need to expose the patterns of behavior because over a period of time, you do something long enough, you now make it a habit. Right. I agree with that. I remember speaking to a guy who, um, he was really struggling with porn. I think the worst porn addiction I've ever, I've ever heard of, if you believe it. And I've heard it's crazy because it gets worse. What? There's no bottom. I'm sure there isn't, but this guy, from yeah. all the people I've spoken to, I've yeah. heard the worst mm. from him. The, the length of time and what he did to hide it, just unbelievable stuff. And I said to him, I think you got to tell your, tell your wife. I mean, to the point that his wife believed that he had an illness he didn't have. That's how far he took his porn addiction, wow. just as a way to explain some of the absences mm. that, he ha- that he had. So she thought he had stomach issues and other kind of um, wow. problems to explain what he was doing in the bathroom for two hours on a regular basis, right? As an example, but there were many other aspects of it. So you got to tell your wife. And what was clear in this case was the reason he didn't want to tell his wife was not because of shame, not because of hurting her, not because of anything else, just to protect the addiction. Because exactly what you're talking about, the patterns of behavior that he would then have to explain, hey, when I'm in the bathroom for two, three hours, that's not about an illness. That's about me watching porn the whole time. Then she knows, okay, that's what to to look out for. So you're right. There's a difference between patterns of behavior and then- How you misbehave. Exactly. The details around it. Yeah. And it's interesting you said that. I remember um, a few years, well, maybe like over 10 years ago, there's a very well-known uh, Christian singer, and he faked his cancer. And he came on like Christian, you know, with an oxygen tank wow. and all this stuff. And it found out that he didn't really have cancer. You know what it was? He was struggling with porn. And? He went through great lengths to feel simp- for people to feel sorry for him. It's weird. Interesting. And I think, what, what I think with it? something like that kind of addiction... You almost, you feel so much shame that you just don't love yourself anymore. And so I think, you know, you look at that, you're like, wow, that's absurd. You would walk around with an oxygen tank, go to doctor's appointments. But then I look at my addiction and all the stuff that I did that was absurd as well. And all the times that I've heard absurd things, 
And I don't think it's that crazy. I think it will drive someone to a point where they would totally lose their identity and almost lose a real sense of reality. When I heard that, I was like, wow, that guy went to great lengths to do that. Like, couldn't hide it. Like, 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 but it was crazy. But I feel like when you say that someone fakes their sick or, you know, two, like, you know, two hours in the, like, yeah, I think people go to great lengths to hide the real shame. And it's so crazy because he never stepped outside the boundaries of his marriage. But I think with another person. Yeah. 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 But the addiction of porn is, I think it's, it's gut wrenching. Right. The reason I said that is because for some people, the boundaries of their marriage would be looking at porn. Meaning if that's the agreement that the couple right. has, yeah. then that's the agreement the couple yeah. has. A question regarding um, your wife. Mm -hmm. So you guys are together now. and Yeah, we've been together. We're celebrating 16 years, November 17th. Congratulations. And yeah, this was, this was three years into our marriage that, that I came clean. Three years into our marriage. Were you together for a long time before? We were together since 2005. And we got married 2007. Got it. Yeah. So, and today you have two kids. Today we have two kids. And Noah and Nehemiah. Nehemiah cool. And Nehemiah was really a. Uh, it was interesting at the time. Nehemiah is Nehemiah, like yeah, same thing. Okay, yep. the prophet. Yeah. Yep. And so okay. it was the 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 story behind that was, um, when we were separated. My wife literally said a prayer, and she goes, "If you restore, like we always read in scripture, like how important naming your child was." Mm -hmm. And it was always important to name your child uh, either on the blessing or how you named your child. You would curse your child pretty much if you named them something else, right? So we felt like if God rebuilt our marriage, we'd call my son Nehemiah because, like, he rebuilt the walls. He led the rebuilt of the walls of Jerusalem. Beautiful. He'll rebuild our marriage. And so our son was a testimony of God rebuilding our marriage because we didn't have kids at the point of when I revealed my addiction. So if we did have kids, it was a testimony of the restoration that we went through. So what did, what did she do that allowed her to, to get through that, the pain, the betrayal, and everything else? Um, I saw her go into her own recovery, her own healing. You know, it's, I know for her it was really hard because these were some things that also she experienced with her father in the sense that of the stuff that he did and his marriage to her mom. And so, so it her, was rehashing some of the wounds. Got it. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was showing my wife, like, the men in her life aren't taking marriage serious. And so, you know, I look at that and I say, well, you know, what do we need to do? And she did, she said, here's what I need to do. I don't know what you need to do. <laughs> and I appreciate that because that al allowed me to grow. That allowed me to actually find myself because she did her work and I did my work. And then I mean, we she, took she took some level of responsibility, not for your actions, but right. that there was something going on with her. Uh -huh. The fact that there was infidelity amongst her parents and now in her marriage. Right. In some way, she was a common denominator there. Yeah. And, and again, it, it, was, it was interesting that my wife, who was a licensed clinical therapist, Right. Like she could see these things. And now 
she could see it both from her education and clinical side, but also from personal experience. Side. Yeah, the personal experience side. And so I feel like we're constantly on this journey. Like, you know, I, I don't know if I'll ever get off this journey of working on me because I have a lot of work to do still. And I love it. I love the fact because I know what it feels like to forget working on myself. I know what I'll never forget that feeling again. And, and I'm grateful for that. You know what I mean? Like years later, I could be grateful for everything we've gone through. Of course, it sucked when we were going through it. It was horrible. It was shameful. It was, it affected everything in my life. My career, it affected my, my, my marriage. It affected my relationship. It affected my friendships. It affected everything. And you don't, you don't, you don't think it will, but it can, you know? And so. Oh, it takes over a lot. Addiction takes over yeah. more and more and more. You and lose more yourself more. real 100%. quick. Yeah. hundred uh, percent. Do you remember how the porn addiction started for you? Where that kind of came from? Yeah. You know, it started with um, my uncle who he, he had an addiction. And he was just always leaving his stuff, like videotapes and the, the VCR, oh, magazines, man. you know, like he was just so careless with it. And I, that's how it got introduced to me. Do you remember at what age? I must have been around, around six, seven years old. You know what blows my mind is that you'll hear about so many kids who were introduced to porn at that age. Yeah. When were you six, seven years old? In the 80s? Yeah. So imagine a six, seven-year-old now, meaning you were having to find VCRs. And I was having to stumble on it by accident. Right, exactly. Now just, yeah. It's all right, all on the iPhone. Meaning in those days when porn was much less accessible, the amount of stories that you hear of six, seven-year-olds, yep. which is six, seven, eight, mm -hmm. which stumble on pornography... Imagine today, yeah, what it's like, and the and then you talk about the effect it had on you. Yeah, so it, it that was that was how I got introduced to it. I'm trying to remember. I feel like it was after though, the sexual abuse, because it only sensuality and sexuality has this weird way of like, it's almost like a Bluetooth signal, like just connecting. Right, you didn't introduce that um, part in this conversation. Yeah, but I know it about you. You were sexually abused as a child. Yeah, so. I went through sexual abuse as a six-year-old, and and finally told a counselor when I was eight or nine, and that was what I felt like. Like if you ask me, like a specific time, I've had, I've, I've had to, I've had to piece back where did we live, who was around us, what grade was I in. Like I'm trying to like always remember like those moments but i know it was at six because i knew where we were where we lived and i asked my mom did we live at this place and i remember uh the timeline there so i feel like somewhere in between there it was kind of like you stumbled on it you stumbled on it, and then as you get older you know you get you get introduced to things that are on cable right then you get in again those are the kinds of things that like it continued to evolve like there were seasons of where i would totally avoid it and not be interested and there were seasons where it was just like straight binging you know what i mean like i was like okay how do i break this cycle so, that is the addictive cycle the binge yeah purge, that binge, is yeah binge purge binge yeah purge. I, so, I think it's something that's not understood by a lot of people on the side of addiction is that most people go through a binge purge in whatever the addiction is and they'll use the purge cycle the purge portion of the cycle mm -hmm. people the addict 
who's in denial and trying to do whatever they could to protect their addiction will use the purge part of the cycle as evidence of the fact that they're not an addict when in mm -hmm. fact, yes, that's part of it. We, we eat too much and then we vomit. Yeah. Right? We eat too true. much and then we say yeah. we're never eating again. again. We're going on a diet. That is the cycle. Binge diet, binge diet. <laughs> and we do the same thing with porn yeah. and with sex and with everything else. Yeah. yeah. I felt like I would probably have never, I remember one time I must've been my early twenties and I remember saying this, I said, I think I'm a sex addict very early in my twenties. And then I never talked, I never said it again until my thirties, until I realized I was a sex addict. But it was that point of like, if you ask me now, when did your addiction start? I would say it started at seven. If you'd have asked me a few years ago, when I got into recovery over 10 years ago, I would be like, oh no, it just started a few years ago. But if I look at the history, if I look at the patterns of behavior, if I look at the fact of like, I craved it and I desired it and I wanted it. I wanted, I wanted to feel because I was introduced through the sexual abuse by an adult woman, that level of sensuality as a six-year-old. So for me, I was triggered very early on, very early on. And, and I didn't, and I couldn't, I didn't know what to do with those feelings. So then the craving, the obsession yeah. came after that. Yeah. I, I think it, it, I think, low key like even when i was in relationships with with women uh, i remained a virgin until i was 18 you know and then i couldn't i couldn't stop the craving it was almost like i need to figure out what this is i don't know what the hell i was doing you know what i mean but i need to figure out what this was so i felt like i had always struggled with the mismanagement and the misplacement of those feelings and and porn was the easiest way for me to suffice and and get those fulfilled and it never was fulfilling right but at least in the in the yeah. short term at least yeah feeling it, like there yeah, was something like they say you know it, 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 you, there's never enough well, one is too many it, one a is too many is, thousand a thousand is never enough yeah right 100% right got it yeah am I taking you back down memory lane <laughs> no i just thinking yeah porn is porn is a tough one and it's not it's not so much my struggle today yeah but man, did it kick my ass. It yeah, was so, it did. so, so, so tough. And it is with a lot, a lot of people. Um, how did the religious um, messaging that you received, because you grew up fairly Catholic? I, a Christian. Christian. Yeah, more, more of an, my grandmother was like a, kind of grew up more of a, like in a Pentecostal, like spirit-filled environment. You're going to church regularly? I was going to church regularly. And, and at, the, at a very early age, I said, man, I want to follow, I want to follow Christ, right? Like that was my, my thing. And I always had a gift of connecting and communicating. And so very early on at 19, I started to actually speak and I preach very early on as a 19 year old. I don't know what the hell I was talking <laughs> about at 19. I didn't have really much life experience, but I was really good at it. And so I became a youth pastor at 21, became a national speaker. That's what brought me out to South Florida, this mega church out in Florida and, you know, says, man, we'd love for you to come and speak to our youth and lead our youth. And we, I grew that from 25 kids to over 400 kids. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, and so we were just like, for me, it was, I, I loved my relationship with God and I hated religion. I hated the institutionalization of 
You have to do all these things in order to be accepted. Did you feel like some of the um, messaging around religion played into your porn addiction? Oh, yeah. I couldn't tell anybody. I couldn't, I couldn't be honest because if I did, like, I think the faith community is supposed to be a place of healing. We're the worst. We're the worst at it. Like, you're like really modeling that. You know what I mean? Because we, we, in order, like, like, I think if I got honest with a group of guys, they say, uh, what is it? Somebody, there was a saying that used, they used to say it like, um, um, man, I forgot the saying. It was like, like out of a hundred percent of men, you know, uh, 50% of the men in the room, right. Uh, would agree that they struggle with this. The other 50 just don't know it yet. Right. Like, right. like, so it's almost like a hundred percent of us go through this, but the level of honesty and support is not there. I've heard it said, uh, 90% of men struggle with masturbation. The other 10% lie about it. Yeah. Yeah. 100%, <laughs> exactly. Something like that. So I feel like it's, it was so taboo growing up. You know, and I think in today's society, in today's culture, you know, I look at the institution, you know, how church is institutionalized, and I'm grateful for it to have some cultural sense, but at the same time, it's almost like, like, how do we genuinely love people? Like, who is not flawed? Like, who doesn't have a shortcut? Who does, you know what I mean? Like, tell me one person who doesn't. So today, your, your relationship with God is strong. It's stronger and it's not based about around ministry and it's not based around what the church needs from me. So what is your understanding of the way God views your porn addiction, your struggle with porn, your use of it? Yeah, I mean, I look at, so there's a great, there's a great uh, story, right? Of, uh, it, it was like the, the famous story of like the prodigal son, right? I mean, the guy's a sex addict, 100%. Like, the guy's a sex addict, right? And they talk about how he sells his father's, you know, gets the inheritance, sells his father's things, goes in parties, comes back, you know, he finds himself in the pig pen, and then it's like, yo, let me just go back to the house. Like, I'll work for you now. Like, now that I'm, I've blown the inheritance, let me work for you. And so I look at that, and I say, and God is so gracious. Um, and it's not just about porn. I think... For us men, that is our biggest struggle. I think that is one of our biggest challenges that we face in society. Um, it's Struggles out. around sex. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's taking men down like crazy. Like, like and here's the thing. I, I, I think it's a huge part as to why, and I think porn in its natural sense was seeing an image and not just watching a movie. And I think it's gone back to just Instagram as one big porn fest. Like if, if we're dead yes, honest, it yeah, it could be. Yeah. I, and I love social media. I love Instagram, but there are times where I'm following people and I have to unfollow them because for me, it's too much of a trigger. Right. There's a lot of sexualization. And yeah. Like you can, yeah, you can get high off, like you can, you can get high off that. Like the, the, the constant seeing it over and over and over again. And so I think like in today. I think God looks at sex addicts and says, you know, there's grace. That's the beautiful thing. That's the one thing I remember um, my sponsor, LJ, saying to me. He said to me, he goes, you're going to learn the grace of God now. It's the first thing he told me when I walked in the room. And I was offended. I was like, bro, you know who I am? I'm a pastor. I'm a minister. I'm a <laughs> preacher. Who are you talking to? Like, He says, now you're going to learn the grace of God. 
And he was absolutely right. I had no clue what it meant for God to love me. I had no clue what it meant for me to love myself in spite of my flaws. Because I was so used to playing the act and the role of the church minister just to appear a certain way, but I was struggling in that. I was having public success, but private failure. That was like my story. And I was just tired of it. I was like, I can't keep this act up anymore. Right. Yeah. So I, I do feel like, you know, there's a lot of grace for, for people. And, you know, it's not just men. I know we talk about men, but I hear the, the addiction realm is heavily saturated with women as well. Porn addiction. Yeah. Yeah, there are. There are many, many women. Yeah. And there's an additional level of shame yeah. with women who struggle with porn. And they make the mistake of thinking not that many women struggle with it. But the only reason anyone thinks that is because there's more men than women. Yeah. But if it was women, like if you just take, If you did the number, the percentage-wise, yeah. Right. If you said, for example, let's say depression, mm -hmm. right? So you, so you said, hey, if 20% of people are struggling with some aspect of depression, that's a lot. So depression is a big problem amongst men and women. Let's say pornography, 40% of women struggle with, mm -hmm. um, I don't know, an unhealthy relationship with pornography. I don't mm -hmm. know if that's a number, but let, let's say 40% of women str struggle with it. That's, that's a very high number, but because men is something like 80 or 90%, mm -hmm. we assume that women don't have the problem. But for women who are struggling with that, I think they need to know that yeah. it's common for women to struggle yeah. With, yeah. Uh, with porn addiction. We're sexual beings, and sexuality is a fire that's difficult to tame, and it's difficult for all of us. And yeah. we don't have a lot of good tools or role models, or the way people talk about it is just, it's just insane. It's so, so. It's so personal. It's, it's like, how do you really... You, you talk about it, but you it's almost like in the moment and it feels more free to talk about it in the moment, but we're, a lot of us aren't struggling in the moment. We're struggling when we leave that moment. <laughs> That's when we're not reaching out. That's when you're not calling them, picking up the phone. That's and this is true even for people who've been around. 100%. Right? Meaning this problem can happen certainly to me and I'm sure to you is if we get stuck in some sort of spiral, it'll be difficult then to pick up the phone and call 100%. someone. 100%. Like, it doesn't matter how many times you've been at it, calling right. someone, it's always a thousand pounds that phone when you're calling to ask. It for is, help. and that that's why I felt like being in that in that season of recovery was so hard and beautiful at the same time. When you say season of recovery, so you're no longer going. I to no longer or... attend um, some of the meetings like I used to. Um, I did for a season do celebrate recovery, which was more of a faith based um, program. I actually led a program for two three years uh, in the faith community that I was in before, before I moved out to where we live now. And I checked it out again. And I, I, I'm in a different place right now, just with organized religion. Okay. Um, I feel like I found what I'm looking for and it doesn't have to be around because for me, I was an approval addict as well. There's a book called the search for significance, Robert McGee. And he talks about the approval addict of how we are constantly needing approval from other people mm. to find our significance and self-worth. And I did that. And, I, and, and I'll be honest with you. I used my platform as a pastor and as a minister that I needed people to need me. That's what, and so I needed to get away from that. I needed to disassociate with that and find my true calling and what my purpose was in life. And I feel like that has become more of my focus now after being in the rooms for 
10, 12 years. Okay. So let's, yeah. let's talk about that. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we reconnected over mic drops. This is why yeah. I recall it. Um, so mic drop was, you know, with, with Rosh Lowe, Rosh and I founded it. It was helping people share their story and teaching others to share their yeah. story. So you came, you shared your story. Mm-hmm. Um, you shared everything. And it's on YouTube, right? Yeah, it's called Shame on Me. Shame on Me. Oh, I remember that. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it was a hit. Like yeah. A lot of people saw that. And then right after that, I think Rosh said, hey, why don't you start coaching? Yeah. People? Rosh asked me uh, at the time, he said, hey, you know, uh, why don't you take four people through this? And I knew four people. That's when I was leading the, the recovery community. Right. Okay? So I was leading Celebrate Recovery at that time. So I there was four people who I knew and I invited and said, listen, I'd love to, to share you to share your story and love to work with you. And at the time I was working as a coach. I had started my coaching business back in 2016. Um, I had been a speaker for 27 years. You're literally. still on Instagram as that coaching. Guy. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, it's coach Benny Salas. We kind of did a little bit of a rebrand, but the business is called that coaching guy. Cool. And so, you know, we, we literally set out, um, to, to want to work with people, right? Like that was my heart. So you're talking about those four people. Those four people, Russia. like my heart was to really work with them and help them tell their story because my drop was such a powerful experience for me. One, because that was at a time where my story had finally evolved with that part of my story. I had not shared that part. What specifically? Yeah, like, you know, the sex addiction, the going through sexual oh, abuse. Oh, I got you. Right, like, right. like, I'll still tell you, it's still hard for me to watch that. Shame on me. I went all in on that, bro. Like, like my mom's like, hey, where's the video? I'm like, you don't want to see that video, mom. <laughs> like, you don't want to see that. That's the one video I don't want you to see because I talk about how I felt about, like, you, that, grew up, you talk about growing up in Chicago. Grew up in Chicago, grew up, you know, with family, and I felt shame around my family. And there was a lot of really hard conversations that I put out there uh, in cyber world. And, you know, I kind of, I kind of was like, damn, should I have said that? But I was like, you know what? It's my story. It's my truth. Um, I'll, I'll deal with anything that comes afterwards, but in the moment, that's what I needed to do. And I've so, heard, uh, I've heard the term for that, the feeling that you're feeling is a vulnerability hangover. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> like, you how know, I when felt. You stretch yourself. I was like, as I was watching, I was like, oh man, I got to fast forward that part. I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear what I know I'm about to say. Right. And so. When we took those four people through that, um, I had prior, right? I'll tell you the story. Uh, I was sitting at a thing called Creative Collective. And this event called Creative Collective was uh, really bringing artists, professionals, entrepreneurs, and so forth together. While they were bringing us together, they were like breaking everybody off in workshops. Artists go over here, graphic artists over here, photographers, videographers, everybody's breaking out. And I'm just sitting in the audience. I'm like, nobody else is here but me. I said, where are the communicators and the speakers? And so as I'm there, I, I literally said, you know, I, this was my conversation. I said, God, what's my creative gift if I can't identify with anybody here? Why am I at this event? I felt like God said, well, how did I create? I said, you spoke. He says, speak more. And that's how I launched my program. Speak more. Speak more. Yeah. It was literally me looking deep within, within myself, but speak more. The more that I began to dive into it was the, was this eight year old 
that was sitting in the auditorium listening to a counselor speak from a stage saying, if you've ever been sexually abused, come and talk. And that was the courage that I needed at that point to tell about my story. And I realized that... That's how you came forward about your story? Yeah. That's unbelievable. Yeah. That's, that's, how, did, I, that's how I told got, my mom. A counselor got up in front of a school... On a stage. If you've ever been sexually abused... Come and talk to us. We're going to be in the counselor's office. I remember going back to the classroom. And now all the memories start to come back. Because I suppressed it. My offender told me that if you tell your parents, they'll be mad at you. And so the message I got was that I will not be approved by the people I loved. If you speak. If I say anything. Speak less. Yeah. And so for me, that message, speak more, has an origin. It started as me as being eight. I'm 46 now. I've, ha I've had to contextualize this message for years. I've had to actually live my story and tell my story in order to help other people do the same. And so what Mike dropped But not only in, in order to help people do the same, but in order to fulfill your purpose. Yeah, fulfill my purpose. I didn't know that was my purpose until I went to Mike Drop. I knew it. I didn't know where to begin with it. I, I mean, didn't know where it could right. spark. That's cool. By the way, that's amazing for me to hear this. I love <laughs> is that the, the intention behind it, yeah. behind Mike Drop, was exactly that, was to empower people, give people a voice, and who knows what happens afterwards. There's no, you don't know the direction it would go. Right. So how cool that Speak More yeah. um, came as a part of that. Yeah. Tell me if this is too far for, um, for you. So the message for you was Speak More. Yeah. Uh, you got the message from the person who sexually abused you to speak less. Yeah. And then from the counselor to speak more. Yeah. Looking back at your story, were they both telling you the same thing? Essentially, I think that was, there was... There were, there were all clues. There were all, you know, insights and evidence into my purpose. Right. In, in some way, and I, so I'm asking if it's too far, because this is what I would do with my, this is what I do with my own story. This is what I do with what happens to me is, I just want to know if it's too far when I share that with you, is to say that both the person who told you speak less and the person who told you speak more we're actually trying to get you to do the same thing on some level. Could be subconscious, yeah. could be, you know, probably subconscious. The person wasn't, you know, wasn't uh, thinking they're helping yeah. you. But in some way, laying out a path for you to say, hey, you're dark. Like someone who represents darkness for you yeah. is telling you speak less. Mm -hmm. And someone who represents healing and hope and possibility yeah. is saying speak more. Yeah. And I would even say, even the moment that I confessed to my wife that I was struggling with porn was me speaking more. I would say the moment that I asked God the question, why am I here, was me speaking more. It was, I was tired of living a less than type of life. Rather if I was being silent, rather if I was being shut out, rather I was, and, and so was tripped out about even that whole experience is, my offender tells me speak less. As soon as I come out of that, office by the way there are two kids who are outside and they see me come out of that office and they know that they said if this ever happened to you come talk to the office they were hall monitors their first words to me were haha i know what happened to you wow so not only did i get the message of speak less it was now you're becoming a laughing joke and so this is why i worked so hard to create this image 
that people would not laugh at and that people would accept me. So I became a people pleaser. I became a yes person. I, I would do anything for approval and acceptance and affirmation and all these different things. And, and recovery helped me to see all that. I would not have seen that until I realized that I was unhealthy the way I was. And so it has been an ongoing journey of not only finding my message, because it's one thing to have a story. It's another thing to have a message, right? So what's your message to the world? And that's where I'm at right now in my life. It's helping people discover what that looks like for them, helping them understand, bring their story together and understanding that there is a greater purpose and a greater meaning to you. How do we get that message out? So if I'm understanding correctly, when you were standing up on stage speaking as a pastor, you were speaking more than. Yes, I was speaking. But you weren't fulfilling your purpose. But I, but I wasn't honest about my story. I was honest about what I think other people should do. I was, I was great at telling other people advice that I couldn't take. But I think that's all of us at the, when we're in the height of our addiction, right? Like, do X, Y, and Z, but right. we're struggling right. with the same thing. Like, like right. you should be honest. Really? Are you honest? Like, <laughs> right. like you know, so I, I feel like if I, if I had to become a pastor now, I would, I, I'd kill it. I'd love, but that's not where I'm at in my life. Because I also realized how limiting the church was to me. I realized that my message was for the world. It just wasn't for a church. It just wasn't for a specific group. It was for people who have something to say and want to say something. And that could be anybody. So maybe one way of saying this is previously you were speaking, but you were the star. Yeah. Today you're speaking as a way to encourage others to be the, the star yeah. and to speak more. Yeah. And I, and, and be honest with you, what would also help me to... to to define speak more as my, my thing was that no matter what career, no matter what season, no matter what anything happened in my life, speaking and communication was always uh, consistent. You could put me in sales. You could right. put me in this. And I normally say this, I sucked as an employee. You want to know why? <laughs> I was too entrepreneurial. I sucked as an employee. But one thing that was always the opportunity was like, damn, that guy could speak. Let's get him. Benny, you could lead. Benny, you could do this. Go, go do the interview. Go do this. And so for me, when I came to you at mic drop, the topic was so heavy that it was my first time talking about that. Right. You dug deep. Right. Yeah. And, and, and you saw from that, I was going to like, like, I was going balls to the wall. I'm like, like, let's go all in on it, man. Like if I'm here, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to leave this mic drop doing just that. No, I remember the, I remember the talk, even though it was probably four or five years yeah. ago. I remember watching it. I rem you had, um, uh, I think, images of your home in Chicago yeah. then or images of yourself, your family. Yeah. With, within, uh, so the, the, my point in saying that is the talk has made an impression yeah. on me this many years later. Yeah, yeah. There was something about that. And that's not about speaking well, which you do. That was right. about speaking real. Yeah. And, I, and then that was the first time I ever felt like I spoke real. Like full on real. Like not afraid of who's going to judge me. Not afraid if I'm going to lose social status or significance in the church realm. Not afraid if people are going to approve me or disapprove me. At the point, I was like, I love me. I approve me. So I need to share this message. It's awesome. I'm glad you did it. Yeah.
Thank yeah, you. Apparently. Yeah, you created so, that opportunity. You you guys created that opportunity for me. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. It's cool. It's cool because, like I said, that was uh, a lot of the intention behind it. And today, Mic Drop doesn't live as it does, but it lives through you. So, yeah, you know, 100%. that's uh, that's awesome. I mean, Rosh is still out there and Rosh is still training people. As a matter of fact, not long ago, um, it, it may end up being released before this conversation is released. But Rosh uh, was training someone and we had the idea of having them do a talk. Which will which will only be released through this through the podcast. So he did the talk in a studio and we'll be releasing it in that way. So awesome. Rosh and I collaborated on uh, on that together, and we'll see we'll see what happens with it. But really cool story of a guy. Um, his name is Yehuda Garari. His sister um, had committed suicide, and just you know the the lessons and learnings from yeah. uh, from that experience. But it's a it's a really powerful thing to give to give people a voice. Yeah, and I, I feel like I feel like pe- people have. They want that. I think just, I think the pandemic as well. I mean, we ever talked, you know what I mean? Like going through that whole experience, I think people really started to figure out like, who am I when I lose everything, when everything's taken away, right. when I don't have access, like I feel like, and so a lot of the people that we work with now, like, you know, I get, I'm blessed, man. Like I, I, I really, am. I think the learning curve for me is to realize how much speaking and communication has been a big part of my life. And it wasn't just me telling my wife. It just wasn't me saying this as an eight-year-old. It was also me watching that person on stage speak directly to me. What would have happened if I didn't go to school that day? What would have happened if I would have never responded to that call to action? What would have happened? I wouldn't have this story. I don't even know if I'd be here right now. Well, you definitely wouldn't have this story. When you right. say you don't know if you'd be, you don't know if you've made it. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Right. Because I take what she gave me, that counselor, and I said, I want that. I don't know what you have, but I want it as an eight-year-old. And I think that was the, the turning point for me. I'm not saying that my mom or parents addressed it. And I've talked with my parents about this. We, we have had an open conversation about why didn't you do anything about the abuse and, and, and whatnot. And you brought it up to them as an adult. Oh yeah. Saying, Hey, how come when I brought it up as a child, you didn't do anything? Yeah. I brought it up to them as an adult. I, and, and what'd they say? Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think there were moments where I've had to filter what I felt. And at the same time, let them know, like, Hey, I love the advice you're giving. You just didn't do it. What do you mean by that? So I love the advice about, you know, hey, make sure your kids are doing this and make sure that you protect them. And I'm like, but yeah, you you can do that when I told you when I went through. Oh, you say yeah. yes. <laughs> yeah. They were giving, okay. Yeah. Fun. yeah. They were telling you how to parent. They were telling me how to parent, but yeah. And like, hey, come hey, on. Like, you missed the boat. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, you dropped the ball on me, right? But I think I also understood my parents are very young. My mom had me at 17. My dad was 21. I couldn't imagine having, I mean, I had kids when I was like 35 and like 40. Yeah. So I could imagine at 21 or 17. So I think I've healed from that. I've healed from that. I've done the deep dive, the work, the therapy, um, the processing, the conversations. What did your mom say or your parents say when you confronted them about it as a, as an adult? Um, When I first told them back in, when I was an eight year old, nine year old, they asked me, did it happen? And I said, yeah. And the way my mom dealt with it was... Did they know the person yeah, who abused? Yeah, it was my family friend. Right. 
And it was only, not only a family friend, but it was somebody who was close to us, who lived with us. And so it was, um, you know, my mom, we, you know, we grew up that, that was part of my story. And the mic drop was, you know, we grew up in a tough street. So my mom just, she handled her business. Like my mom, mom put a whooping on this woman. <laughs> that, that was how she handled it. I know that felt good for her, but it didn't right. do anything for me. Right. <laughs> like, I'm glad you got your anger out, but, um, but what did you want more than that? I think I wanted my parents to get me help to talk about it. Because I was talking about it, and now we didn't talk about it. Gotcha. Oh, it's kind of like I handled it. Don't worry, she's gone. Yeah, yeah. This won't happen again. But the effects of it weren't were long term. Yeah, understood. Yeah, and yeah. I think that's powerful. It's so subtle and nuanced because your mom did so much more than a lot of others. Yeah, yeah. In the same situation, have done, but it still didn't address everything. Yeah. Um, inside you. Well, I don't think that she saw what I needed. And communication was what I needed because that's what I was displaying. And you could look at my life 46 years later and you were like, okay, Benny communicates. It's what I needed. I didn't get it. And I didn't know it. I couldn't tell that. That's what I, I couldn't tell you. What I need is more communication. I, what do you, you know what I mean? Like you, you're either trying to get over it. And so I think my parents thought if I just love Benny more, if I just baby Benny, if we just, you know, you know, he'll forget about it. And I think that I never... I'm always the guy who's like, I'll, I'm, the, I'm just the guy that will address the issue. I'll address the tough conversation. I don't run from the tough conversations. So I think that's just the way that I'm wired. So knowing that now I can see why I felt the way I felt growing up. That makes sense. Understood. And what'd your mom say? What'd your um, I think over the years. As an adult, when you yeah. confronted her. I feel like she, well, she apologized. She apologized. And I felt like it was genuine. I felt like it was real. Uh, my dad apologized as well. Did that heal something for you when they did? It did. It did. It made me bring down the guard. Because I was like, how can I trust you with important information when I did before and you did nothing? So for me, it helped restore trust in them. Because for me, that's important. You know, it's quite a fascinating thing for me when I see a lot of um, a lot of people confront their parents, the way the parents will defend themselves. As if they did nothing wrong and you the parents have to know on some level that there was something right. wrong. But what's interesting is that. That's not what you're looking for then as an adult, right? We're not looking right. when when someone is going to their parents and saying, hey, you did X, Y and Z wrong. They already know it's wrong. <laughs> the right. defense isn't going to help. Right. It's actually the... Are you going to own it? Are you exactly, going to own your part? Exactly, the owning of it, and then yeah. it takes away something, right? <laughs> it heals something. But well, for whatever reason, parents often go into a defensive posture. There was a therapist who I spoke with. Um, he was sitting on the same chair you are a couple of months back. His name is Mendel Toron, and he does family therapy. So often parents with children, sometimes multiple siblings, and a parent, and uh, he said... The way I remember what he said was, is that oftentimes in family therapy or pretty much every single time, someone's going to storm out and it's almost always a parent. Mm. Not almost always. It's always a parent. Meaning the one, mm. the one, outside. The one who should be sitting down exactly. is always storming out. Right. Right. It's always. Well, the, the it's interesting. Parent. One of the things that early on in my recovery, when I started to do therapy, I remember my parents coming down 
the holidays. <laughs> my dad reminds me of this. I said, guys, uh, we have a meeting today. And they're like, really? I was like, yeah, just meet me over here. And so they pull up, and and I guess they see counseling office, right, counseling center. And uh, I tell my parents, I said, um, we're going to have a meeting with my therapist. I said, but I'm not looking for an apology. I need to tell you where I've been over the past eight years, nine years. And I told them everything about what was going on in my addiction. And I, 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 I said, for me, I'm going to take control of this narrative. Right. I'm going to control what I tell you now. And that was important for me. And I remember my dad being so pissed. <laughs> he was so pissed that trip. He was so mad. And there were times as well, you know, I mean, like, you know, my dad was, you know, he used to have a drinking problem. My mom, you know, she dabbled in some other things that were, you know, um, you know, some drug stuff and stuff like that. And it's been a while, man. I mean, one time I just, my dad did something um, at a restaurant and, um, He's like, what's your problem? I said, you're a fucking drunk. And it just came out. And that was just me. That was, right. the, that was the little boy. Right. Like, yeah. you know, and he didn't know what to say. And I, I apologize, obviously. I always want to respect my parents. But I think I had, if I look, if I'm honest, man, I've grown up in a family full of addictions. Drug addiction, sex addiction, food addiction, gambling addiction. Um, you know, you name it. Uh, all kinds of of addictive behaviors. And I think as I've gotten older, I've been able to work through all that. Right. Because you get to a certain point where you're like, man, my life has been tough. Like, like I don't ever, I don't lead with that. And the reason why I don't lead with that is because everybody's got a tough life. 100%. Nobody has it easy. Like, you know, some people have it better, but they don't have it easy. So I, and, and I think also we can, if we're not careful, I'll, we we'll get into comparisons and I don't want to do that, but I do, you know, look and say, okay, you know, we've worked through some tough conversations and I'm grateful for where I'm at now. You know, the journey that I'm on now, um, I feel extremely blessed. I feel, you know, and your relationship with your parents today is what it's better. It's way better. Awesome. Yeah. Way better. Um, and I'm grateful for that. It's, it's a, it's a, it's still in process. It's a healing. It's a journey. Right. You know, no, they sound amazing. I mean, just yeah. your story, I no, understand sound, some of the struggles, yeah. but in terms of the way she stood up for you as a child and the way they accepted responsibility. Yeah, and you know, I never, you know, it's, it's so interesting you say that because that I never saw that as her standing up for me, but it was. And I need to acknowledge that with my mom. I always felt like, I guess because we just grew up in a rough area, like that's what you do, just beat the shit, <laughs> you just beat the shit out of somebody just for no reason. Yeah, like you know, so like I felt like, yeah, mom was just reacting, but you're right, she did stand up for me. She did what she knew. Yeah, she did what, what she knew. knew, and I, I have not acknowledged her in that way, and I need to. Right. The reason I bring that up is because hearing a lot of other stories, that wasn't the case for yeah for it's true for kids. It's true. Yeah. So well, yeah, it didn't address some of the things because she didn't understand the long term effect. Right. You know, so many people say to victims of sexual abuse, just get over I'm it. I'm going to thank her next time. Next time I talk to her, I'll be like, Mom, thanks for beating that lady up. Just like, tell her to watch this one. Like, just, don't, don't. <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll cut it into yeah, a clip yeah, yeah. you can share like, with Just her. watch the, <laughs> yeah. the YouTube short clip. Don't watch the real one. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, you know, just hearing a lot of stories, I think it's awesome the way they uh, they, they set up. And listen, in my case, as an adult, my mom didn't know about it um, when I, as a kid, because I didn't tell him. And as an adult, 
for whatever reason, I felt more comfortable telling my dad um, about it, about when I, 23, 24, went into therapy and opened up about my abuse. So I told my dad about it, but I said, don't tell mom. And he didn't. A few years later, I told, I told her, and she was like a bat out of hell. I mean, she confronted and went to her parents, went to the rabbi. She did everything she could. And eventually the justice that I did get happened through her, um, her actions, which I think was very healing for me and very, mm. very healing for her. So while, yeah, I can go and pick things apart and say, not even pick things apart, they're kind of obvious, is, hey, I went back over and over to this guy to get sexually abused. Yeah. Obviously, I didn't feel safe in my own home. Um, how does a parent not notice the changes in behavior? Right. I started getting punished a lot for, for um, you know, getting angry and acting up. What happened? I went one day from being chill, another day to being angry and uh, aggressive, and no one thought to ask what's up. So I can certainly go back and pick apart those behaviors, but then there's the other side of it, saying, hey, you know, even as an adult, she stood up, and it was cool to me because I was working on, I was working on getting closure for my own story, and it failed. Everything I tried hit a dead end. And there were a lot of different things I w was doing and made some progress and hit a dead end. And what I wanted was a meeting with him. That's what I wanted. I wanted a meeting with him, sit face to face. I want him to hear how he impacted me, me, him, and a third person, a therapist. And I actually have a, a, um, a video on YouTube. It's called Secrets. Mm. So put my name in Secrets, and it, um, I talk about that story of eventually confronting him. And what was neat about the story is that my efforts failed over a four-year period from when I first contacted him till I kind of gave up mm. on ever putting that meeting together. And then when I eventually told my mom, she was like a bat out of hell and did what moms do and yeah. <laughs> you know, straightened it out. So, and yeah. I think that was healing for her and for, and for me. So yeah. it's cool. You know, and I, yeah. I think we'd be honest about that. There obviously, we didn't end up where we are because we had perfect parents. Right. Yeah. But, um, well, it's both healing. in my case and your case, it's healing to hear that. Well. It's yeah. healing to hear that because I never associated her her effort that way i always felt like you know <laughs> maybe because just latin families were just loud <laughs> it just was just like yeah that's normal like just beat the snot out of somebody but yeah no it's a good way to acknowledge because I, I i i almost felt like she did nothing but that's not true she did yes. she, she didn't do it all but you know i mean she, she did something she didn't know yeah until i think until someone experiences it mm. or is very close to someone who's experienced sexual abuse, we can't understand the impact because the impact does not make sense. It does not make sense logically how a kid can go through life and have one, one minor experience. Yeah. You know, in my case, I was abused many times, but even so in the scheme of my whole life, it wasn't that many experiences. Right. And it's really only sexual sexual abuse that I found that can impact someone in that way. What I mean by that is, um, let's say someone had a wonderful life and one time they were verbally abused or physically abused by someone. Unless it was a lasting injury, mm -hmm. the emotional impact, the spiritual impact of that will usually be very minor. Mm. It, would, it would take sustained physical abuse or sustained verbal abuse or sustained psychological abuse to have a lifelong impact. But you can have someone with a pretty good childhood and one story of sexual abuse and you're sitting in front of someone as an adult that's in pieces. Yeah. And I, I think the only way to explain it is 
on a spiritual dimension is that our sexuality touches our spirit so closely that when it's messed with, yeah, it messes our spirit. Yeah. Like it messes us. It does. On a very, it, very deep level. Yeah, it's, it, it is. And like you said, I don't remember it happening over many, many instances. It did happen several times, but it was enough for me to feel unsafe and violated. Mm -hmm. It was enough to mess with my mind so much that I felt like I needed to, to like stimulate, you know, yeah. that feeling and sensation. Right. And that can be one way possibly to, to logically explain it, but I don't think it's enough is that when a child's sexuality kind of gets, for lack of a better word, turned on. Or when the wires get much, crossed a little right, bit. It's yeah. like here now it's activated, meaning mm -hmm. a, a six-year-old, a seven-year-old is not meant to be a sexual being. Right. So the sexuality is, whatever is there is kind of dormant, and all of a sudden through abuse or through something else, it becomes turned on or activated. Well, yeah, well, the, I mean, there's a scripture that says, like, kind of like, don't awaken love before it's time, right? Like this whole idea of like, don't stimulate yourself in that direction, because once you turn that on, or once that gets activated, it's almost like, you know, we're creatures of like habit, so we're going to explore. Yeah, And it, I think sometimes... Feels like putting a powerful engine on a bicycle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like just gone. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. A wild, wild, uh, wild, a wild story and wild hearing how, um, you know, our paths have intersected and not that much, but a couple of key points yeah. in the journey. So that's, uh, that's pretty cool. Where to from here? What's, uh, what's next? Yeah. So, you know, I think, you know, there's a few things, um, that we have going on. Um, I really want to take this message of speak more out there. Um, I really feel like there's a, there's a story. The moment, when I share my story of going through that journey of trying to be silenced, looking at how my addiction silenced me for many years, um, it resonates with a lot of people. I think a lot of people may not, they either resonate with that story or they fill in the blank and say, this was the thing that has silenced me, right? Yeah. It's, so, it's a symptom of dysfunction 100%. if someone cannot express themselves clearly exactly. and comfortably. And I sat with a very painful fear of public speaking yeah. for many years. And while there were other areas of my life that were working, that was a symptom of something yeah. major. We should not have a fear of speaking. We should yeah. not have a fear of expressing I, absolutely. ourselves. There's, there's a saying that I've, that I've said over the past several years, and it came to me when I was, uh, I was, either, either I was coaching a client or I was working on a workshop. And I said, people don't fear public speaking. They fear the public speaking. Mm. That our biggest fear. They fear the public speaking about yeah, them. Yeah. Right. Our biggest fear isn't what we're going to say. It's what others will say or will not say. It's the acceptance and the rejection that we feel from other people that stops us from becoming our greatest selves as communicators. And when I tell people that, it, they stop. They're like, what? What'd you say? <laughs> like, I said, yeah, you don't fear public speaking. You fear the, you have a fear of people, not public speaking. And most of them will agree that their greatest fear is not what they know needs to be said. It's what they don't know what will be said. And I think if we can find our voice in our businesses, if we can find our voice as professionals, if we can find our voice as advocates of causes and, you know, and initiatives, if we can find our voice beyond just what I feel 
to what I know, then we become more powerful and active and we become a force to be reckoned with. And that's what I want to see for people. I want to see people step into their, their God-given potential. I don't know what that looks like. And I often tell people, I don't have the keys to your success. You do. You just misplace them. Let's go find those keys. Let's get on the journey. Let's figure out what that looks like for you. And so that's what we're, that's some of the initiatives we have, whether it's doing through an academy that we've put together, an intensive program where we're taking people for two and a half days and we're going to train them, get them to tell their story, awesome. equip them. Um, you know, we also have, you know, as a certified coach, man, I've been coaching professionally for 12 years. We're going to build out an actual coaching certification program to teach people how to leverage their skill sets and actually help people find their breakthroughs. So I feel like I'm in a, I've been in a different season of both life and business. Um, I myself am a keynote speaker, so I travel and get paid to speak as well. And, um, you know, it's been a, it's been an interesting journey, but it has all been around my story and my message and the mission to help people speak more. And I didn't set out for it to be that way. I was, I thought I was just going to talk about like how to be a successful entrepreneur, but no, it's like, no, this is what happened to me at AJ. Right. Like, (laughs) and so, but I feel like that makes me human and it makes me connect with people, which is what we're all longing for, which is that human connection. And so that has been some of the things we're working through. You know, we're finishing out the year strong. I speak at like three or four masterminds that are coming up. Um, I'm be doing an Amazon prime. Like I was sharing with you, Amazon prime has a thing called speak up and they have like different episode seasons. So they'll do like six episodes. like they'll do like 12 speakers in episode four. So I think there's like maybe eight speakers in episode five that I'll be on. Oh, so cool. yeah, that, you know, we'll plan a TEDx talk as well that we're doing. So, yeah, I mean, that's where I, I saw this talk you did. It was short. It was you were standing at a table. It wasn't. Nice. Yeah, it was a speaker competition. Okay, you're yeah. standing I think, like, behind a chair. Yeah. At a table, maybe a three minute talk. Yeah. I saw that and I said, I got to reconnect with. Yeah, them. it was a. It was that's uh the Great American Speak Off, and um they they do three cities: is Miami, Chicago, and I think Las Vegas. So in the Miami one, they had about six thousand people register. Of course. When it comes to speaking, nobody shows up. <laughs> so 600 <laughs> actually showed up. And then out of the 600, they select uh, the, the people that they felt really, I think they had a number, which was like 30. So they had 30 people uh, show up or 30 people get selected to go through. Uh, you did two rounds. You did one minute, right? You got feedback from a master coach or whatever their, their coaches were. You got invited to the second round. So that, so they eliminated people from the first round, second round elimination then you get the golden ticket so the first round i did one minute second round i did two minutes and uh i was too busy worried about the clock I, so i did like a minute and like 50 seconds um and so I, you know for me again it's it's understanding and and again understanding the story the scenes understanding how to transition and piece this together how to bottom line it how not and to, to get, do all of that in two minutes. Yeah, oh, yeah. Awesome. how to not get lost in the details, you know, how to make it exciting and inviting and, and say those, what they call a phrase that pays, right? What are those one-liners that someone's not going to forget? And so um, that was that. And so they're, they're, they'll be gathering the rest of, they're, they're supposed to do 100 people get a golden ticket. You show up in February in Hollywood or Aventura 
at Cardone's uh, thing, wherever they're going to have mm-hmm. it. You do another, um, I don't know if they'll have it there or somewhere else. Then you do another competition out of those 100. Four get selected to speak at GrowthCon, which is probably like ten to 15,000 people. Oh, neat. Grand Cardone's 10X. Yeah. yeah. That'd so, be cool. So I, I'm, trying okay. to be one, I'm trying to be one of the four. <laughs> Hope yeah. to see you there. We're, we're looking for sponsors. <laughs> <I'm a> sponsor. <laughs> yeah, but that's yeah, a, it's going to be exciting. That's really cool. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I hope you uh, get it. I mean, it's a beautiful mission, a beautiful message, what you're sharing with the world. Is, uh, yeah. It's awesome. So you do, you still do one-on-one coaching? Still do one-on-one coaching. We coach, uh, a lot of the people that I coach now uh, are really just executive business owners and entrepreneurs, and we'll do things for their teams as well. We'll do, we'll do group trainings. We'll do workshops. Uh, a lot of the, uh, work with a lot of agencies as well. So a lot of agency owners seek me out because they want to. They're great at helping everybody else build their platforms except their own. And so agency like media agency, media digital marketing oh, agencies. Cool. Yeah, <laughs> right. they're you know you name it. Um, and so I feel like there's there is a need right now, especially in the market. If you're in if you're in business, you have to build your brand. Like you have to build a brand. You have to build a message around you. You have to be known for something, right? Right. And so I feel like. I get knocked on a lot of, uh, my door gets knocked on a lot for that, to help people do that. And so we do have some other things that we help people through. We do workshops, we do challenges. You know, we've, we've, I've, I've taken time to really understand the market, what people need, both from social media, both being in person, both creating online and digital products. Uh, I wrote a book called The Three Core Essentials to Speaking with Confidence. The Three? Core Essentials to Speaking with Confidence, Understanding Your Why, What, and Who, right? So you can download that as well. Uh, we made it more of a download resource, as a, as, but... As opposed to a sellable book. Yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to try it out. So is as, there a website where someone can yeah, see Yeah, you can go to bennysalas.com. Um, you can go to thatcoachingguide.com. Either one of those leads you to my page where it shows you everything as, as well. Um, I think my book is probably under Speak More with Confidence, Um and then you dot com, and then you can get that as well. We are going to work on a book right now that's called "When Confidence Speaks." It's not speaking with confidence; it's when confidence speaks, mm-hmm. it's what happens when you are in a place where your confidence speaks for you. Like, what are the possibilities? What are the opportunities? And where are the limitless boundaries that you can take your message? Yeah. So, you know, in in this way, uh, our story is um, similar as well. That. Finding meaning, purpose through through speaking and 100%. through communication. Yeah. Is that there was something stuck here that wasn't just blocking me from talking to someone else, but blocking me from my purpose. Hundred percent. And unlocking yeah. that, and I feel unlocking that has been a gift. Yeah. You know, um, Shaman Omar, who's uh, an ayahuascaro, who's um, I have a lot of respect for, and who sat on this couch as well, talks about the difference between a gift and a blessing. Mm. So he says a gift is you have a, a gift of communication, but it's a blessing when you share it with others. <laughs> I like that. So on that note, yeah. thank you. Thank you for sharing your blessing with us today. Thank you for having me. It's a blessing to be here. It's <laughs> amazing. I hope, yeah. a lot, uh, I hope we look back and you say that it, this was um, a, a day that changed something, that something shifted. It wasn't just a, a conversation that you and I had. But looking at your career and your business and the clients that you've um, gotten from it, whatever it is, something shifted yeah. from uh, this day today that we, yeah. we sat together. Seems to be on your your podcast and your platforms that everything happens. So. Not everything, but something's <laughs> doing so. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah.
awesome. Thanks so much, Benny. Thank you. <laughs>